for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards. I really appreciate it. You're doing it again. Um, can I get you anything? A comfy pillow? A cup of coffee? Um, I want to get right to it because we've got a big uh, meaty, sweaty bacon cheeseburger of a podcast. Wow, this special guest. I mean, I'm not going to tease. It's Josh Green and uh, we just get into a lot of subjects and uh, he has a fantastic story at the end. So we'll get right to it. But um, I just wanted to say, uh, hey, welcome. And um, what are some things we're excited about this week? Well, uh, it looks like daylight savings might be voted out. That we won't have daylight savings anymore. I I don't know. I didn't even know you could do that. It's like voting for an extra week day. Hey, let's make another week called when Thursday that goes in between. I just didn't even know you could vote for like time like that. So that's... And a lot of people have, I found out, have strong opinions about uh, daylight savings time. A lot of people have strong opinions about small, stupid things. Um, Just get on social media and you'll find out. It doesn't even have to be about Star Wars or your favorite superhero. It can be about, well, I'll just get get the ball rolling. Uh, Toilet paper. On the roll. When you hang it. Should it be over the top or under the bottom? Like, it should be over the front or hang over the back. And I'll just, uh, I'll just start this by saying that when I go to somebody's house and they have toilet paper hanging over the back of the roll, um, I just know, oh, I live in a house. I, I'm here at a house of insane people. These people need my help. These people uh, have a mental problem. There's no possible way that they can be using the toilet paper roll to the best of its functions without me. And I literally will take it off. Let me, let me take that roll off and flip it around. Because uh, I got to help these people. Because when you reach out to grab it, there it is on the front. You got to just have it hanging off the front. Uh, silverware. I am a strong uh, advocate for when you put silverware in the dishwasher, in that little basket, you put it tines down. Do you know what tines are? Tines are the little uh, pointy parts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the pointy parts. What well, We should just call them pointy parts. The knives, the uh, the forks in particular, uh, spoons we don't care much about, but I do I do care I do care because if you, there are people that I've I've been to their house I've stayed at their house and they put the silverware in tines up, spoons up, knives up. First of all, you're going to reach in and you're going to hurt yourself, but second of all, you're going to touch all the parts with your fingers that people put in their mouth when you pull them out to put them into the drawer. So people that wash their silverware tines up, I'm like, these people are monsters. And I'm sure that I can get on Twitter right now and go, tines up, tines down. Take a poll. People get into it. They would go on for days. People get angry about it. I think that we get angry about, I I don't know if we get angry. It's fun to get worked up about the small stuff. And I think that's because... Uh, the big stuff can be so overwhelming. The big stuff we should not debate on social media. It's it's pointless. It's worthless. Um, I don't know if we need to invent another forum online, and I don't know what that is. Um, whether it's like a come and go Zoom call where people just drop in, but even then people would just start shouting at each other. I think um, 
I, I, I may be shouted down about this, but I, I think we should take away anonymity on Twitter. Uh, famous people and even semi-known people, and I, I, am, I am on social media to kind of further my, my presence as a creator, so I use my real name, and I have a photo of myself. And so that makes me very careful what I say on social media. So some of these people that still just have an egg for an avatar or um, an anime eyeball or something, uh, and, and, and they go by some anonymous weird name, well, yeah, that's like wearing a mask all over your, on your whole head and walking into a public place and shouting whatever you want. And I don't think people should be able to do that. I think, I think you should be identified on social media and so that your boss can see what you're saying, so that your friends can see what you're saying, and people can, <laughs> I don't know, look you up. People can look you up in some way. Because I think it would just give everybody a little edit button, okay? Because we can't solve the world's problems on social media. Um, leaving a little, I used to say, like, the different stages of social media are, I think, I think Facebook was... Uh, a, a format that was similar to stopping by somebody's house and at least sitting on the edge of their porch and saying one or two things to them and then getting up and walking away. Twitter is like you're driving by and you shout at someone and keep on driving. There's, there's no way they can have a comeback. And even if I shout a comeback, they'll just circle back around and drive by again and go, what? Nice try and drive away again. That's Twitter. That's Twitter. And then YouTube and Reddit comments are more like, um, I don't know, in the middle of the night, somebody throws a Molotov cocktail at your window. Like that's what, that's what the comments on YouTube feel like because they are anonymous and they've already been there and gone. And, um, they've probably even changed their account by then. And they're, and they're sometimes they're the nastiest comments or the dumbest comments. And there's nothing we can do about that stuff. So I try to keep the big stuff off social media. And if there's ever anybody who cares about what I think about the big stuff, you know, hopefully someday it'll be an interview. Um, I might get into it on this podcast. I'm not going to use this podcast for, for, for politics or, or deep culture stuff. I'm going to use it for entertainment. Um, but I think that uh, the small stuff is fun to debate. The small stuff like toilet paper or uh, Captain Kirk's latest uniform. Uh, oh my gosh, they cast Captain Kirk again. Uh, I haven't even talked about nerd stuff on here, but like that's something uh, that, that people I'm sure are getting uh, upset about or excited about. That on the uh, the next, uh, what is it, the uh, 28th Star Trek show, Strange New Worlds, it's all about Captain Pike, but there's also going to be Captain Kirk, and they've recast Spock, and they've recast Kirk, so there's a couple of Spocks and Kirks out there, but we all believe in the multiverse now, right, that, uh, that just is starting to explain everything, so if you didn't like this actor, uh, you know, there's a James Bond multiverse, because there's like five different James Bonds, uh, but that helps us relax about the different Batmans, uh, the different, uh, Spider-Mans, the Spider-Mans, uh, we can all just relax because it's a multiverse. Uh, there's just a parallel earth that cast another guy, but now there's a new Captain Kirk and, um, we'll see. He's still wearing the yellow shirt. Um, but Hey, I, I think it's fun. I, I, I uh, when, when people debate the small stuff, so don't worry about debating the small stuff. Um, enjoy debating the small stuff. Just don't take it too seriously. Like, it's a joke. It's a joke. The amount of, I don't know, just people frothing at the mouth about The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker or any movie that is good or bad to you. Like, it doesn't have to be the worst thing you've ever seen that burns your eyeballs and is a pile of dog poop. 
and you want to set the world on fire, guys, it's a movie. Like I'm consumed by movies. It's all I do. It's all I think about trying to make and going to watch. And I can step away and go, well, that wasn't for me. I sure didn't like that one. Like, I'll tell you a secret. There's some parts of Star Wars I don't like. There's a couple of things in a couple of the movies that I'm like, yeah, not for me. Not a fan. But I don't know that I'm going to go, Jar Jar Binks should be run out of town on a rail. He should be tarred and feathered. He should be put in a cannon and fired off into deep space because I hate him so much. I really don't. I'm just like, nah, not for me. Eh. Some, I've met some kids that love the Jar Jar, so, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dash their dreams. So, uh, let's, let's debate the small stuff. Let's have fun with the small stuff. Let's get excited and irritated in a funny way about toilet paper or whether uh, a, a wrap is a burrito or a burrito is a wrap because it does or doesn't have rice in it. Let's debate that. Let's get into it, man. I might even have a guess where that's all we do. I, I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a week where we have like silly debates. And it'll be like, I'll have a list of subjects like toilet paper and silverware in the dishwasher. And we'll have silly debates. And we'll get worked up about it. And then we'll pat each other on the back at the end of it and say, isn't it great that none of this matters at all? <laughs> now, uh, go vote for someone to run our country. Woo! Then we can, uh, we can all privately talk about that. But listen, when you talk about that, sit down with somebody. Sit down. Maybe at a party when everything's gotten chill and a lot of people have gone into the kitchen and uh, the music got lower. And just talk to someone and say, you know what? I feel this way. And you don't. And I want to tell you why. Because I'm a person you still like, right? Like, we cannot lose friends over these debates. We cannot shun family members over these debates. They're important enough that we hold these ideas. So... We should listen to each other just for a little bit longer and not walk away. In a Twitterless environment, in a Instagramless environment. I don't know if people debate on Instagram because I, I don't pay attention much to that. Um, but uh, hey, you know what? Th- th- that's all I'm going to say about it because I want to get to our guest, uh, Josh Green, because uh, boy, we got a lot to talk about and I know you'll have a lot to listen to. Let's get to it. When I think about my next guest, the term creative Swiss army knife comes to mind. And I don't use that term lightly because this is a man of many skills, many talents. If you need something done in any creative area of the business, he's probably learned how to do it or is currently learning. He's an amazing creative person, uh, jack of all trades, master of many. And I just wanted to have him on the show as soon as possible. My good old friend, Josh Green. Appreciate that intro uh, because a lot of people don't know I actually was in the Swiss army for several years. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. You go. Now everyone knows. Now you're you're a creative Swiss army man. man uh, yeah. I was also going to point out, uh, if anybody's seen Hoodwinked, he is the voice of Jimmy Lizard, the Lizard uh, director that leads the audition for The Woodsman. And then also in Crogzilla Gets a Job, if you love Crogzilla Gets a Job and you love the theme song, that's all Josh Green. And he's also the voice of Crogzilla's best friend, uh, Marcus. That's right. right. That's right. That was a fun project. And, and, and uh, what was the Barnacle's name? Oh, Jeff. yes. You're yeah. Jeff the Barnacle. This and is a Jeff deep the, dive into Crogzilla. You're Jeff yeah, the Barnacle. Jeff the Barnacle. I forgot about. 
I forgot about uh, <laughs> that Al Pacino impression. Right, right. I should do a whole interview with you as Jeff the Barnacle. What would he say <laughs> if I welcomed him to the podcast? Uh, who is, I don't, I don't even remember the voice. Who is this? Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. He was just an incredibly offensive barnacle that lived on the on the side of the head of the main character. Well, Josh, I have to say, I have to brag on you a little bit because Josh and I have we have written screenplays together. Uh, we uh, we we actually went out and pitched a show together. One of I'd say the most elaborate pitch I've ever done. And for those of you who don't know what a pitch is, it's like it's like a verbal presentation of a movie or a show, and it usually takes about fifteen minutes. But um, I mean, Josh, you should probably describe it because you led the charge. It was it was like being in a little miniature two man play with Josh Green. Yeah, uh, it was for a movie called Schindler's List Two. What? And <laughs> that's not true. Um, it was so for much a... dancing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it was for a, a movie about show choir. This was before Glee came out, right? And uh, we we had a full on uh, like musical score and. I, did we have a? It wasn't a slideshow. It was a some kind of PowerPoint presentation. But we would yes. like we would cue different slides when different characters would come up, and I had like photoshopped you know, Liza Minnelli's head onto like a basketball player's body, and <laughs> and and we would sing and dance, and it was um, yeah. We lip synced to Queen. We <laughs> there were props. There were slight costume changes. And, yeah. Um, and yeah. it, was, it sounds cringeworthy, but it was actually so entertaining that some of, I know my manager would like book us to say, you just got to watch the pitch. It's just going to be entertaining. It's going to yeah. be a great 20 minutes of your day. We, if we could have just charged admission for the pitch, we wouldn't even have to make the movie. Right, right. Well, and that was interesting because not to not to go back to these roots too too much in this interview, but I want I want to paint a picture of how much of a creative Swiss Army knife you are because... I tell you, if, if there's any skills you need that are anywhere in the creative sphere, like like as I said, Josh and I have written <laughs> screenplays together. But you know, Josh, you're the kind of guy that when you write the screenplay or get the pitch deck ready, as it were, mm -hmm. then you create the movie poster with Photoshop, and then you like produce the theme song to the show you're pitching. And uh, there's just a lot of skills that you have, and I think all that goes back to I I knew that you you were uh, in show choir growing up and oh, now yeah. you are uh you have led and composed some of the some of the most amazing show choir shows at some of the highest level high school show choir competitions that i've ever seen it's like a broadway show in 20 minutes yeah yeah we uh <laughs> and by we i mean me um we have to pay our bills and i i don't say that with any disrespect to show choir i've been uh, a part of it most of my life my dad actually i don't know if you know this my dad, and I don't know if people know that you and I uh, are both from Anderson, Indiana, for that matter. Okay, let's get there. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't know each other when we were growing up in Anderson. No, we did not. Our parents, I think, knew each other. Um, and I think maybe, I think maybe I knew Ty. I say knew. Ty, your cousin Ty. Yeah. Um, because rumor has it we once took a bath together. But I, <laughs> that might have been in our... Oh, Josh, you know, that you, know, you know that rumor was last year. <laughs> uh. um, right. But so back to the, the task at hand. Um, yeah, I my dad was at Highland High School. Did you go to Highland? No, I did not. 
Where did you know, you I think I, I think my life was very young in Anderson. Then I moved to Columbus, Ohio, and then came back for college. So oh, got you. Okay, okay. Well, I, I actually did too, because uh, we left when I was eight. So we were both bo- like born there and then left. So all of this to say, my dad was uh, the choral director at Highland High School, and so that back then it was called swing choir. There was there was yeah. no such thing as show choir. Um, you were putting on a show, but <laughs> but there was a lot of swinging. You, were swinging. Um, you know, with bell bottoms and sparkly shirts, and um, so I like grew up watching that, and then I was in it in high school, and my mom played the piano, and my dad would come in and work with the horns. He was an administrator by that time. Um, and then I wrote my first show choir chart, uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, it was just a little horn chart that accompanied one of the tunes uh, that we were doing in our show that year. Um, and then the next year, the, the choral director from my, from my high school reached out to me while I was in college and said, Hey, do you want to write our show? So I wrote a show for them that next year and have literally every year since then, and I am now 48, have written at least one high school show choir arrangement every year that's even when i had like a full-time job you know doing theater or being on tv or whatever i've always written at least one show choir show and in the leaner years i i write a lot more (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean we're going to be pretty frank about that on this show because i mean the, the 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 world of being an artist whether you're a musician whether you're a screenwriter whether you quote unquote make movies for a living Uh, the pragmatic side of that is it's it's a rough life because there are highs and lows. And I think a, a lot of people have that, you know, that plan B that they go to in between the big plan A. And uh, but but I, I seriously, when you say show choir, some people, if they haven't experienced what current high schools, especially like the bigger Los Angeles high schools are doing, I uh, it's it's like if you've seen Moulin Rouge and you see what Baz Luhrmann did with contemporary songs that he mashed up and then put into a, a, a an environment that you would never expect to see those songs in like that's the kind of stuff that that you, at least the expectations that you have set like yeah. can you give me some of the mashups you've done yeah um like we i keep saying we i i mean i work with several directors across the country um but you know we've been known to mash up uh west side story and eminem yeah. or put together uh you know michael jackson and nine inch nails and super tramp all together uh in one arrangement um and i do i do this you know a little differently than a lot of arrangers do or i shouldn't say that because actually the landscape has changed over the last 10 years but i kind of came out of the gate uh, when i was hired for the first time here in southern california and i was like if we're gonna like if I'm going to spend this much time writing music, I want to tell a story. I want to, I want to do a 20 minute Broadway musical. So like yeah. about 10 years ago, I was doing all of those mashups in an effort to tell a story. And that's actually become rather commonplace. Now people everywhere are doing it, but like, it was a weird thing when we first started doing it and judges didn't, <laughs> not all judges particularly liked it. Because at the time, like at best, it would be like a theme, like, oh, all these songs kind of link together in a theme. But like, exactly. Like, like, we're you're, gonna you're do telling all... like, a mythic story about some some young person hero's journey that grew up on a faraway planet or something like. Yeah, it got elaborate. Yeah, I think actually the one the well, you may have seen more than one, but I think the one that that most people remember and are familiar with is a show called prodigal where it was kind of a retelling of the prodigal son story but it was set like in this future dystopian world where 
there were there weren't any humans left except for one one mother character who made all these toys these anime toys but the toys like revolted and created their own world and so she's created this new toy and he runs away and you know and there's a rave sequence and it's just madness and then comes home and they're reunited and well and these and and these budgets uh for these major high schools got pretty high like i remember there was kind of a digital a digital wall like a video wall that was creating some of the backgrounds but then you also had physical scene changes and and a lot of physical costume changes within those 20 minutes oh yeah oh yeah and in that particular show each kid was dressed up like an anime character so they had these huge eyes painted on their faces and wow. it was nuts yeah it was nuts well i bet that i bet high schoolers really got into that and 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 i'm sure not every high schooler knows what super tramp is <laughs> to like somebody like and you've got like this uh, lexicon of like the history of music in you and you can say you know what we could take this 50 year old song and this you know 10 year old song and then a song that came out on the charts now yeah and they all relate in this rhythmic way that i can hear it even though nobody else can yet right that's that's a pretty good assessment yes of what i do well and that's you know and as you have you always wanted to write movies uh, as young as you were getting into music you know, um, if I'm being honest, no. I always wanted to make movies and be in movies, but the actual writing part of it uh, didn't. That bug didn't really bite me till uh, I was doing Rent, and you know, we worked three hours a day. <laughs> you do a show three hours one night, you have the rest of the day to kill, and so I kind of just took up screenwriting as I, I don't want to say a hobby. I knew that I knew that it might help me be able to make movies um and so i just i I, th- I guess i was probably what 20 how old was i 26 when i started writing uh screenplays and that uh, creates a, a way for you to generate your own material and yeah. not wait around for it yeah well yeah. you've always been kind of that guy that if you can't figure it out like i'm not a very technical person but i i'm always amazed that you're like you can also sit down at an edit platform or or a or, or like Photoshop or whatever. And you're like, okay, if I don't know what this is, I'm going to figure it out in an afternoon. I'm going to do a deep dive on the internet and I'm going to figure out how to get the tools that I need to do the creative part. And a lot of creative people are not willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I'm in the process of moving. My landlord uh, wants to move back into his home. This is the third time it's happened to me in my <laughs> last three homes. Wow. Um but uh, I, I bring that up because uh, when I got off the road, most of my friends who were doing the show with me all came back to either New York or L.A. or whatever, and they all bought houses. And I remember at the time thinking, I'm so much smarter because it, rather than buying a house, I'm going to invest in my future. So I bought lights and I bought cameras and I, and I bought Pro Tools and I learned I got Final Cut Pro and I learned how to edit. And I'm like, I'm like learning how to become a filmmaker and like, this is going to pay my bills, you know, like for the rest of my life. But how are those people going to pay their bills trying to, you know, pay off their mortgage on their house? Well, all those people are laughing at me right now. Because you know they... to, the, to the idealist in me, that, that still makes sense. And that, that maybe that's my problem, too. Well, it, yeah, because we're both very creative and like, I think we kind of live and breathe Art. Not that the people that bought the houses don't, but a lot of those people like were just, I, I don't mean just actor as if that's a bad thing. I think that's a beautiful thing, but they, they, all they wanted to do was act. And so 
it would have it would not have made sense to go out and spend all the money that I spent on equipment and and training and all that stuff on acting classes. So they invested in real estate and now their homes are worth two million dollars and I'm writing show choir music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, uh, and, take uh, that. Let's, let, let's just take let's just take a step back because we just glossed over the fact that you just mentioned rent. I just want to point out to the listener. Uh, this is the the Broadway hit Rent when it became a touring show. It's a, it's what's happening in Hamilton right now. You know, the show gets so big that it becomes this satellite show that goes out to locations all over America and the world. And you were a part of that cast of Rent, correct? Yeah. Angel Company. Yeah. And and it was I don't say this to pat myself on the back, but just for like a perspective like of time, you know, it, it when I got cast to to do the first national, the show had only been out for about I don't know seven or eight months. It was it was still like the thing. Yeah. So like I just like crash landed into a world that I just had no. I just it was just a completely different world. The, were, you, were you in a different? Were you in a like a different city every night? Getting on the bus every night? After? No, no. The the first national was a sit down tour, and what that means is you tend you you pull into a city, and I say pull in, we flew, but um, and you spend anywhere from, gosh, what was our longest residency? I think our, I think we were in San Francisco for over a year. We were in Chicago for close to a year. Um, I think the shortest run that we did in any, or that I did in any city was maybe six or seven weeks. Um, but, it, but it's enough time to like get an apartment and, and, you know, explore the city and, you know, kind of feel like you've lived in a place. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was, you know, I was, I was just, a, I got that gig because I had been playing piano for auditions for rent and at the end of three weeks, the casting was like, hey, do you want to audition? Because <laughs> I'd been given vocal notes for three weeks. Um, and so I auditioned. And a, a week later, I was in Washington, D.C. And, like, I went from not having any money to, like, you know, we'd show up at Planet Hollywood. And everything was on the house. And, like, it was just, it was just a complete, complete culture shock yeah um, i would bet well and i would point out too you started out by, <laughs> by just taking one small very menial simple job yes i will play piano and and a lot of people will stop and go well i'm above that or i'm better than that or i'm holding out for xyz but it's like if you do the thing that's right in front of you suddenly you became indispensable to these people and they took you up a notch yeah well that's the interesting thing <laughs> i mean it's really interesting if you take a step even back from that because I was not a rehearsal or audition accompanist. I had never done it. And like the girl I was dating at the time, her voice teacher was supposed to play for them. And he backed out at the last second. She's like, well, this guy I'm dating plays piano. Maybe he could help you. And <laughs> so they called and I'm like, I don't really do that. But I mean, I could learn it. So yeah. I didn't, I certainly didn't go in as an actor. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And I let them know that it wasn't like they were just like, Hey, do you want to act? You know, I was pretty clear about, I would love to do this show. So they gave me yeah. the opportunity and it just all worked out, you know? Well, do you find, I mean, that's the amazing thing is like, um, I think that we had you doing a voice for hoodwinked um, because I, I always, uh, I enjoy your voice because it's got kind of this raspy, unique quality. It's, it's nice to listen to. It's got some, 
It's got some texture to it. It's got some flavor. <laughs> you put a little spice on it. Yeah. Um, but you also can improv. You you are really game to do just weird stuff. Like the audition, man, we have just so much. We had so much uh, uh, recorded of, of you just asking the woodsman to do the craziest things because you've been in crazy auditions. Yeah. And then I think, I can't remember when we asked you, hey, would you do a song? So how many actors do you know who then you can go, hey, would you also like to produce a song for the soundtrack, which is to this day on the soundtrack. And it's during the chase scene with Wolf and Red. So <laughs> it's just, it's hard to, it, I bet it's hard for you to describe, like, like I, I feel like I do several different things, but but you're, you're like 10 times that. And sometimes that can be difficult to either explain to people or put on a business card. Not that anybody has business cards anymore, but when, when you're a multi hyphenate, does that, does that sometimes hurt you? I always thought it would help me. And sometimes it just confuses people. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the generic answer to that question is uh, it's helpful in perhaps in life, but when it comes to getting a job, it can get in the way because well, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, an example, <laughs> an example from Rent uh, was I was initially hired as a swing, and for those that don't know what a swing is, that's somebody that has to cover lots of different ro roles in a show. It's like an understudy, but you cover several different roles. So I had like one, one two, three, four, five, six roles. I think that I covered in the show, maybe wow. seven. Wow. Um, and when they offered it to me, I said, no, I, you know, I really want to play Mark. And, and we went kind of back and forth and they said, well, look, we'll make you we'll make you a guarantee that when a Mark role opens, that it's yours. We just like, we really need a swing right now. Can you help us out? And so I went out as a swing and there's a whole long story that I will not go into, but the end of it is that I was never moved up to Mark. And when I finally, left the show the stage manager said to me you know you're super super talented but being good at everything and and he meant like all the different roles that i was covering is you're never gonna get a lead in a show if you, if you show them that you're good at this because being a swing is something that a lot of people can't do and and finding someone that can cover all these roles is very very difficult so you know, it's, you get the least amount, of, the least amount of gratitude and the least amount of money. It's not the least amount because you get bumps every time you go on, but you're certainly not getting paid like a lead does. Um, well, and that's interesting because you've been involved in a lot of things that somebody will say it, it's playing for the audition. It's playing the piano or being the swing is like, Hey, will you come? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about rock of ages, but it's like, well, will you come and help uh, present this new broad this new musical or will you right. come and help uh, uh, us create a demo for this project and that i know you have some painful stories about that but you while you may not be the final person people see on screen uh whether it's in a role or it's a, a director or a writer you have helped birth so many things at the development stage because yeah. of the multi yeah. nature you have where where the opportunity happens and you kind of raise your hand and you're the guy in the room that goes i actually can do that too <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I think, you know, as, as a younger man, I, um, what's the right word? I think I probably resented, I re resented the results of that. Like I, I, every time I raised my hand, it was in the hopes that this would lead to the thing that I really want to do. Yeah. You know, you mentioned rock of ages, 
uh, Spring Awakening was another one. I did the first workshop cast of that. And wow. like you're, you're always hoping that, oh, this is what leads to the next thing. And then, you know, when it finally does go to Broadway, they either recast or they bring in somebody who's famous or whatever. And like I would like I said, as a young man, I resented that looking back on it now. I'm like, man, how how lucky am I that I was able to be involved in, in those projects? Um, but in the moment, it can smart, you know. The early days of our, uh, the production company I had with my brother, that we had like a maybe a thirty thousand dollar budget, looked like a hundred thousand dollars. You know, we would build the sets right. ourselves, and every time with a client that I would, uh, you know, I would call it being Superman. You, you're Superman. You fly in and save the day, and you do the extra work because you think it's going to win you the bigger job. And and nine times out of ten, they won't remember that the little guy that yeah. was Superman uh, did those things. They're just going to go, well, we're now we're now we're going to go to the big LA team or the big Broadway star or whatever. With regards to attention to detail, I think that that is, is something that we both have. And I'm reminded of, uh, you remember when we worked on The Tragic Hour uh, yeah. together? Um, I think, I think well, that was Todd's, Todd had written, Todd and Peter had written that, but you were in it. You were, you played, right. what was your character's name? Guy, Guy. I can't even remember. Guy Friedman, maybe? Guy Friedman, um, and, that was it. That was it. And it was a yeah. it was a pilot. It was a pilot, and there was a lot of vintage uh, television stuff in it in the TV yes. pilot that we yeah. created. You were you were the deceased father of the main character, but you had all of these things because they kept bringing you back to life via technology. Uh, yeah, right. I was kind of like a, a Steve Allen or a uh, Ed Sullivan kind of right, a character. right. And I uh i had a tiny role like i was playing a newscaster on it but i was also the cinematographer <laughs> right. um and so the story that that that's that like jumps out at me when we talk about attention to detail was and i know like you and todd are very similar in this regard is we were shooting a scene where another of our friends tony leach um was talking to the main character he was his boss and he and and there was a pen that he had to like just hold in the scene the scene wasn't about the pen it was just it was just a prop in the scene yeah. but there was a head like your head was on this pen like a like a action figure head of you was on this pen i remember that and 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 i remember thinking like god how long did it take to make this like it's not even featured in the scene it's just a throwaway thing and and I, I mention that because that kind of attention to detail is the kind of thing that 99 people out of 100 aren't going to see. And most studio execs, I shouldn't say that, many studio execs, uh, and for that matter, the gatekeepers that, that you have to get through to even get to the studio execs, they are not the one of 100 people that see that, that detail. And so, you know, you talk about raising your hand and being the person that's willing to be in at the ground floor and being able to do so many different things and do it well. What I think often happens is they're not seeing all of the work that you're doing. They're getting a good feeling about something because clearly there's something special about this thing, but they don't really know all the work that's gone into it. Cause and they don't typically ever get down and do that work. And yeah, they're just seeing, oh, the end product uh, was pretty good. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I think that the, the bonus is that, you know, both of us have worked on the independent film level and that is where you do have to do everything. And if you do put the little tiny uh, touches on the props, 
it feels like a bigger budget film because typically you got a whole department that does that kind of stuff. Right. In, in this case, nope, it's it's the director doing it. Yeah. Well, I, and I'll tell you, I, and I don't say this with any regret at all, but as I get older, I I do begin to wonder if if <laughs> I spent a little less time like nitpicking all the details of what I do and spent a little more time just being prolific and just keep putting stuff out there. I wonder if, you know, if career things wouldn't be a little different, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's, there's two ways that people work. I think that one, one is, uh, there are some people that put out one good piece of art in their entire life and they, and they spent 15 years on that piece of art. And then there are other people, you know, like, uh, Robert Rodriguez, he is a, he's one of those guys that he's just like, I, I'm just going to crank this stuff out and kind of, I, I will be honest, I, I admire him, but sometimes he doesn't worry about quality. Sometimes yeah. he doesn't worry about the, all those details and he kind of blasts through, uh, a lot more movies per year than his buddy Quentin Tarantino who right. has to get every single prop right or, 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 you know, Jim Cameron, you know, he will disappear for 10 years till he gets something just right. As writers, you know, we talk about killing your babies, like on, on yeah. some level, I feel like if, if I could tr- translate that idea over to my work ethic, and, and this is going to sound strange because it's a weird comparison but like you know when you write a script you have your favorite scene or or whatever thing that's happening but for some reason it just doesn't work you got to kill that you got to you got to get rid of it even though you love it it doesn't belong in the film right. you know I, I wonder if i could transplant that idea over to my perfectionism that yeah. you know like even in show choir for god's sake you know a, a, a lot of arrangers that i know can crank out a tune or two in a day whereas it takes me a week because like I gotta go through and everything, every lap. Like sometimes when I'm bouncing the final recording, I'll bounce that thing 27 times because I hear something I don't like each time yeah. through. Yeah. And it's like at the end of the day, I, th- it's gonna be a bunch of teenagers singing and playing this music. No one is gonna know. <laughs> so why do yeah. I care? <laughs> yeah, so. I know. I I will tell you, I'm one of those people that admires that, and I see it. But I've been down in the trenches with you, and as you say, some of the big money people and the big decision makers, they're not down in the trenches, so they're not going to appreciate that. All they're going to know is they get a script in their hand, or they get the final mix of the song, and they're like, "Good, it's good." Right. And I and I'll I'll go and say this podcast right here. Uh, people have asked me for years, why don't you do a podcast? And I just kept waiting for. I don't have the money for the good microphone. I really want to set up a recording booth. Or I want to find the right partners that will sponsor it. And I'm only doing it now because I finally I said, Corey, you gotta you gotta let go of the perfect uh audio experience and just do, this is a more of a temporary art form. Uh, the mm. podcast is just gonna be it's gonna leave people's ears the second they hear it, they're gonna forget about it. So I should not uh worry about the two hundred dollar microphone. And I know the quality isn't as high, and this kind of sounds like a zoom call and we cut out every once in a while it but- well. And, you know, to take that even a step further, I, I, we, I say I, you know, I've started a a little production company out here with some buddies in the music business. We're doing media stuff, but like we, we are hearing, you know, not everywhere, but that there is something about this new YouTube, I say new, it's not new, but the, the YouTube aesthetic where if you want to create content for YouTube, that that has the potential to i mean anything has potential we never know what's going to become viral but most of the stuff on youtube that has big followings 
uh, is a little rough around the edges. It's an aesthetic, and and it, it's the opposite aesthetic of what you and I think we like. We like right. polish. We we grew up watching movies, like we right. and TV. So like, there is something to be said for you know a a, a an app that has not great you know sound, in in that it's a very specific aesthetic that <laughs> some people prefer. You know, yeah, I've heard that too on web content. It's it's either got to be feel real homemade or it's got to be the most polished thing in the world. So there's that huge uncanny valley there that you got to watch out for. I want to I want to jump into what you're doing right now, because you mentioned this new production company. And I just want to highlight the creative monster that you are, because you guys, you and your partners got together and you said, let's create some content. And it went from like I heard it like you came up with like 20 show ideas in a week that then uh, do according to the response you were getting, certain ones got fleshed out more and more. So the, the, we, we've been talking about wasted time or right. time on the wrong details. This is at least a way to guide your efforts. Yeah. Life is a big, fat question mark. And and you, you think you're going the right way until you think you're not going the right way. And then you realize you were going the right way. Um, so yeah, when, when TJ... Uh, reached out to me. He's a friend I've had for 15, 20 years. I don't know how long it's been. Um, he reached out to me in December of 2019 and said, you know, my part, his partner and, and he were going to start a media company kind of on the foundation of their record label and their publishing company um, and wanted to know if I had any pitches. And so I just sent them 30 like two or three sentence paragraphs for 30 different projects, mostly just pulled out of notes that I've kept over the years. And they responded to the only animated thing on, on that piece of paper or or email or whatever I sent. And they said, could we do a TV show of this instead of a movie? And I said, well, I didn't know you guys wanted animation. Give me a day and I'll get back to you with 30 animation ideas. A day. And, yeah. I want our listeners to to listen to that. A day. <laughs> you, you, you precious, fresh little snowflake newbies, a day. You don't, you don't get to go and sit under a tree and go to a retreat for three weeks and workshop it. You got a day. Okay. Yeah. I'll be honest though. I took two days. <laughs> I took twice as much time. Yeah. Um, Shame and, on and you. I, two whole days. And, my goodness. Yeah, but I I literally just like started vomiting up ideas, and the first one was just a stupid one note sex joke. It was it was just to get going, you know, like just put anything on the page just to get going. And I sent them the thirty ideas, and they sent it out to some people in the business, some producers, and also some muckety mucks in animation. And everybody came back with that first idea is the one, like that's the one. And so they were like we want to run with this. Can you develop it? I'm like, I, I, I remember when TJ said like, we need, we need a treatment and maybe we might, might even need a Bible like for the series. And I was like, I don't know if I want to spend all this time in my, of my life on this project because it's, it was a one note sex joke, but they were right. like, well, that's what everybody's responding to. So figure out a way for it to be interesting to you. And so I took that one note sex joke and created this, you know, for me and the, and the audience might not realize this until they're three or four seasons in, but like a, a multi-layered, very deep exploration of, of life and consciousness and, and the, the five stages of grief. And, but it's all like 
<laughs> wrapped up in a little package called private dick about a penis fish who's a private detective um <laughs> And, so, and uh, I think that is something to highlight is that is that you you sometimes you have an idea. Somebody's responding and you, I, I've had even clients bring me something. And I go, I don't know if I can get excited about this. And then, so then you have to ask yourself, well, what would what version of this idea would you get excited about? Right. And exactly. you suddenly kind of layered it up to become something that is truly yours. Right. You like at the end of the day, if especially if this becomes a TV show, you're going to be spending your life doing this right so it needs to be something that that is a somewhat meaningful to you but b also is something that you like want to share with the world and i'm all about sex jokes they're funny like that's fine but that's not what i want my contribution to the world to be not that there's anything wrong some people do want that but like i feel like i i have other things to say but there's nothing wrong with hiding those things or packaging. They're not hidden, but packaging those things in something that's maybe more palatable to a wider audience. It is okay to say no. I mean, sure. I, I agree. I, I agree with you that if you take the time, you can find a way into just about any story. But I also something I, that it's taken me a long time to learn is that it's also okay to say no. You know? Oh yeah, true. I mean, I've tried to I've tried to shoehorn myself into something I wasn't right for. And, right painfully had to back back away from it again yeah so yeah i would admit that too um so but take me through that process to where you are now um, right so so all of that to say and i won't go into crazy details but i took that project and developed it into the thing that i wanted to make and then we i wanted to do i wanted the pitch deck to look like an old detective's comic so like i went in and built the whole thing in in photoshop and and we had a project that we were excited about going out with. And we actually, this was before we started developing anything else. We pitched it one time. And after that, the people that we were pitching to, it was a fairly big animation company, uh, said, we really like it. It's, it's maybe a little too bold <laughs> for what we want to do right now. Just like edgy probably is a better word. But they said, we love yeah. like where your mind is. Like, what else do you have? And we didn't have anything like we did was our first thing. Right. So I, I said, Hey guys, how about, how about we go through and pick like 10 projects that we dig and just like develop them out a little more. And they were like, well, Hey, if, why don't you do it? I mean, you're the ones doing all the creative, go pick the things you like and, and develop them out a little bit. So instead of 10, I ended up doing, I think it was 18 and 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 classic of, josh green classic josh green well here's how it happened though i said i wasn't going to give details and now i'm giving details um it happened because um I, it, it dawned on me in working on the pitch deck that one of the things that was that caught people's eye literally was the cover of the pitch deck which was the poster that that we had designed for the the series i mean i guess a series doesn't need a poster but it would it was it, it was the equivalent it's a, way to, of a, it's a way to encapsulate what the thing feels like it yes. really does help yes and and guys i have seen these posters I've, I've at least most of them done or work in progress pretty amazing posters better than mock-up posters i've seen in movies about movie theaters you know? <laughs> yeah so you've connected the next dot. So after ha having done the poster for private Dick and the whole pitch deck, I was like, I want to have some kind of visual cue that gives you a feel for the, for the movie. 
and or the series or whatever we're working on. And so I did those first 10, I did posters for those first 10 projects and was having so much fun making posters that I just wanted to keep making posters. So I just <laughs> kept going down the list and just kept making posters until I got to 18, at which point I was like, oh, now that I got a lot of heavy lifting to do because I have to like actually start developing these projects. So we got two or three projects developed and we had another pitch meeting set up. And so we went and we pitched to another fairly big animation company and we sent them over the development slate, which had these 18 projects on it. And I think at this point we maybe had 20 because we optioned two other projects that like the, the scripts were done for. And they listened to the pitch and then we showed them uh, the short fiction trailer, which is another project. Um, and he seemed to be impressed, but he was like, neither one of these is for us, but he started like going through the slate and he's like, but I'd love to see this and I'd love to see this and I'd love to see this. At which point I start panicking because I'm like, he's pointing to all the projects that are not completely developed. Um, and so I said, guys, right. we got to like, we got to pick what we're what we're doing here like if if we're really going to go out with a slate like this we got to do the development for all of these projects or we need to like reduce like decrease the size of the slate so what what we have learned is having a, a good log line every one of the projects has a pretty slick log line having a good log line and a poster that helps kind of encapsulate the feeling and the look and what you're going for is is awesome like it makes execs go, oh, I want to know more about this. But then you have to be able to actually tell them what it is that you're doing. And in order to get 18 projects developed to the place that Private Dick is developed, like I need another year and a half or two. So, yeah. so the you kind of reverse engineered from the opportunity into, okay, now we got to fill in the inside of this package they love so much. Yeah, I think I think we were hoping, and this just, I mean, good God, we're all middle-aged at this point, still trying to figure out how the business works. And I think we were, we were hoping we'd go in and say, look at all this stuff we're working on and hear the things we're excited about, and that would get them excited. And they did get excited about what we were doing, but, you know, everybody has a different itch to scratch. So they'd go down, you know, we pitch them a comedy and they're looking down at the adult animation that's drama. So it's just, it's, it's, it's all a work in process, man. And, but, but, but I will say, I don't want you to beat yourself up too much because it, 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 it kicked down a door that was in their mind that they're like, Oh, the door's open now. And yeah. yeah, you're having to kind of, like I say, reverse engineer from the opportunity. But that, I mean, that's what happened with Hoodwinked is we went in and we, we showed them a bunch of finished things that our investor that we ended up getting. And he didn't like any of them. And then we, and then he kind of gave us this really broad, strange opportunity. Why don't, could you do an animated film based on an old fairy tale that kids know? We're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Not even knowing what that fairy tale was. And then he says, well, why don't we meet back here in 30 days or 20 days? And so then we created Hoodwink to meet the opportunity. We didn't seek out, we didn't develop Hoodwink and then take it out, which is the traditional way that we're all told we're supposed to do it. Right. But 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 constantly, at least two or three times a year, I read about somebody breaking through because they did it the way people aren't supposed to do it. And even when we pitched Hoodwinked to to this investor and he said, I love it, let's do it. We had no idea what the details of that. We, we didn't have a script. We didn't know. You know, so we were like kind of backing into it. I remember uh, Ryan Johnson had so much trouble raising money for Brick, his first film, because every time he set a number up, 
uh, you know, he'd take the script and go, it costs this much. They couldn't raise the money. So finally he said, how much money do we have? And they said, and they found an investor who gave them a, a, a number and then he just backed into that number. He just wrote a yeah. script that was not the first script he wrote. He's like, I'm going to back into, yes, we can do it for this amount of money because I have to. So, I mean, so I don't know that it's that strange of a story. I love the story though. And you guys are still going and you're still pitching. <laughs> If we're being honest, at the end of the day, I don't even know if it's that people respond to the projects that you're bringing them so much as they like you, like, or they want, they. And they're seeing that you are a person that produces stuff and you finish stuff and you execute. Yeah. I mean, if I can, I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, on this, on this point of your career, because I know it's still happening, but people need to go check out your proof of concept trailer for short fiction. You mentioned short fiction. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell the whole story of it, but you basically em- employed a few animators and, and, and it's like pitching an animated TV show that then you actually have three minutes to show people. And then now you just put it out on YouTube as I understand it. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we have a little bit in common with hoodwinked in that I had had this idea for, should I say the idea? Or should people just go listen to it? Oh, you, you, they can just go find it. They can go yeah, find okay. it. It is not, and it, we should say it is not for kids. It is animated, but it is not for kids. It kind of well, takes it, a really. It depends. It depends on who your kids are. It depends, <laughs> it depends, on, it depends on how you're raising your kids. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't give a crap about how your kids are raised, uh, yeah. show your five year old. But no, yeah. it's it's kind of taking an adult spin on 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 some stuff, and and it's just like what what you did with show choir uh, shows is that you are mashing a couple of different things together. And, and, and when you watch it all at once, it is pretty crazy until you see it. You have to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I had had this idea, you know, 15, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago um, at the time when I was still like learning how to edit and learning how to light and all of these things. And I was going to do it live action. Um, I, I, part of me wants to tell a little bit of the story because of how interesting. Actually, yeah. I'm going to tell part of the story. Sure. So, so the project's called short fiction, but it was rooted in this idea I had called Reservoir Dwarfs, which was taking the seven dwarves and putting them in a Quentin Tarantino movie. And my original idea was to cast this with live action with, with little people. And I put out like a casting <laughs> notice and actually got, <laughs> got some response. And one of the people that I got the response from, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't Warwick Davis, but is that his name? Warwick Davis? Yeah. Yeah. Wicket, Wicket. Oh, uh, you're right, sir. Yes. Um, but it was, it was somebody that had worked on an Ewok on, uh, worked as an Ewok on Return of the Jedi and knew Warwick, War, War, Warwick, Warwick, War, Warwick, Warwick, War, Warwick Davis. Yes. Um, but he was like, he was so nice. And he's like, this idea sounds absolutely amazing. But I'm gonna. I'm telling you right now, there's no way you're gonna be able to to afford seven little people because, like, we we cost a lot of money. I mean, he told me that point blank. We we don't. Yeah. We're we're a very specialized thing, and and we won't work for the kind of money that you're offering. So with that knowledge, because I didn't have much money at the time, I still don't. Um, I, I was like, well, what if I tried to do this animate as an animated thing? And so I went out and found these two animators and they did, uh, some drawings for me using like the actual Disney dwarfs and they were great drawings, but they ended up running off with my money, um, and never did the animation. So it just sat on a hard drive 
for 15 or 16 years. And then when we started up this little media company, my suggestion was, you know, we're, we've got this this pitch deck for Private Dick, but like how great would it be to be able to show people what we're capable of doing? And this is where the, the kind of the hoodwinked angle comes in, in that it was a it, it became Reservoir Dwarfs became this larger thing called short fiction where each season we kind of pay homage to a different director. And so we wanted to, in the trailer, pay homage to several Quentin Tarantino films, which is why it became short fiction. But in doing that, the trailer became like two minutes and 45 seconds. And animation apparently is very expensive. And we talked to some animation companies here. We talked to an animation company in France. And everyone's quoting us like $35,000, $50,000. And it's like, grief, how are we ever going to make this happen? And we found an animator in the Philippines. There you go. (laughs) that's how that's i know that that that's a familiar thing for you but they just knocked it out of the park it's like this kid in his like apartment with his wife and kid because it was the pandemic and he had a couple buddies that were drawing backgrounds and it took nine months but they just crushed it you know yeah and 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 you added some of your uh sound production uh skills to it too is that there there's also just incredible mashups of different pieces of music either from disney traditional animated films that we all remember the classics and quentin tarantino films and yeah. so you're weaving in and out of the sounds of these and the and the, the dialogue from quentin tarantino films that have been parodied for the for the disney characters that are now playing all these characters and so it's 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 bizarre and it all flows together very nicely um yeah so it's pretty amazing and and uh can people just uh search for short fiction on youtube actually search for reservoir dwarfs if you search for (laughs) short fiction you're going to get millions and millions of hits but if you if you search for reservoir dwarfs now that's going to ask people to learn how to spell reservoir and dwarfs r-e-s-e-r-v-o-i-r D-W-A-R-F-S. I want to clarify that uh, they're not really Disney characters. They are fairy tale characters. Yes. Um, in fact, they we, we went out of our way not to draw them uh, or try to take the Disney angle on them uh, lest the mouse get angry. Yes. Would that be uh, problematic, I wonder? Well, who knows? I know I've, I've taken up a bunch of, uh, of your time. I know uh, you have so many stories on the road and so many stories on the set. Is there I always like to leave everybody with a good story. Is there is there anything you can tell me in two or three minutes? Do you have any other good stories to, to, to end with that maybe were uh, uh, memorable to leave us to leave us with? Well, Corey, I, I have millions of stories. <laughs> um <laughs> we should spin the roulette wheel the the wheel of story and, and pick one for you well you know what we've we've talked about we've talked about rent and we've talked about show choir and we've talked about movies and stuff so let's take something from another chapter of my life actually okay um so so i went to college um of all things uh, on a clarinet scholarship what? Uh, yeah that that I, I did not know i did not yeah. know yeah, well, it was technically half academic and half clarinet, but but the yeah. truth is, 
I, the clarinet paid for me to go to college, but I had known from the day that I picked it up in fourth grade, when my mom said to me, or actually my clarinet teacher said to me, if you can learn to play the clarinet, you can go to college for free. (laughs) I knew that I knew that as soon as I got to college, I was going to bail on the clarinet. So after a semester, I went to the Dean and I said, "Uh, I really don't want to play clarinet. (laughs) And, and, and the, and the Dean was cool enough to say, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, if I can keep my scholarship, I want to, I want to sing jazz because I was at one of the premier jazz schools in the country, actually probably in the world. Um, And so they were gracious enough to let me do that and keep my scholarship. And so my junior year, uh, we did a tour of Japan. The, the, the JV1, the group that I was in, did a, a tour of Japan. And um, we, you know, it's a, I don't know, a 13-hour flight maybe to Japan. And I'd never been overseas. I was, what, 16 years old at the time? Um, 17, wait, 19 years old, 19 or 20. At any rate, all of this to say, um, it was a long flight over and, and, when we landed, we were doing homestays in most of the cities that we were going to. Like it was supposed to be kind of a cultural thing too. Like we would get to a city and we would perform, but then we would also go home and stay. Like it was two people to a to a house or a whatever a dojo or whatever they're called over there. <laughs> that sounds. I, I I'm I, I'm ignorant. I don't. You know had to name. fight in a dojo. <laughs> we had to fight. Yeah. With a clarinet. <laughs> With a clarinet. Yeah, that's the story of my life. Okay. So we had been on this flight for 13 hours and then we landed. I don't remember where we landed, probably Tokyo, but we landed wherever we landed. And like, I don't know, it took two hours to get off the plane for whatever reason. And I had to go to the bathroom so bad. But when we got off the plane, because it was so late at night, and it was all these people that had been waiting at the airport for us to get off the plane. And it was like one o'clock in the morning now. They like they were like, there is no time. There is no time. You got to get you got to get in the out of the of the airport and get to your your car and go. And so my buddy Eric and I were ushered out to a car that proceeded then to drive another 45 minutes or so. And oh nobody speaks nobody speaks any English. Everybody in the car uh, only speaks Japanese. And I'm like, I, I got it. Like, I got to pee so bad. I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> and so we finally get to their house and they let us in. And literally the only thing I had learned, that's not true. I probably knew how to say thank you and hello, maybe. But like the only like phrase I had learned in Japanese was, uh, where's the bathroom? And so as soon as we opened the door, I said, and they like were so excited that i was speaking japanese but i i like said it a couple times like i i really need it um urgently and so they they pointed the way to this little room and in japan at least in the homes that we stayed in the the toilet room is different than the bath room right so they ushered me to the toilet room and and interestingly and this is just a side note but there was a glass window in the door of the toilet room, which struck me as very strange, but it didn't matter. I was there. I, I, I got rid of the urine that had been building up for however long. And then I looked for the flush on it and I couldn't find a flush. All I saw was a control panel that looked like it belonged on the starship enterprise. 
<laughs> with all of these Japanese markings all over it. And I knew that one, one of those buttons went flush, but I didn't know which one. And I had been in this, this house for all of like maybe five minutes at this point in time. I'm in this tiny little room. And so I just started pushing buttons. And <laughs> at, the, at that point in my life, I had no clue what the day was. So I pushed buttons until I heard this noise. And this metal thing comes out of the lip of the toilet and starts squirting hot water and soap on me. <laughs> and and I am I am I mean I'm fully dressed. I I just got there and I'd only had to pee and I'd zipped up by that point. So like it's just like it's coming at me hard and it's coming at me fast, and I'm pressing buttons frantically trying to get it to stop. Um, and I and went. You, at, have, you 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 have entered this home like thirty seconds ago. Two minutes. I mean, it was a okay. long pee. I had a lot of peeing to do. <laughs> I'm just saying these people don't know you yet. No 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 walk- no and screwed up their toilet system yeah yeah and 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 so after about a minute of pushing buttons i'm now standing because this room is tiny i'm standing in maybe a half an inch of water at this point though it's it's filling up the room i say filling up there's a half (laughs) an inch of standing water on the floor oh my god and i can't figure out how to get it to stop and so i just turn around and sit down on the toilet with it spraying. And so now it's just spraying my pants, like soap and, and hot water all over, all over me. <laughs> and, and like, I, I'll, and, and like, I spread my legs to try to push the thing back and it squirts up in my face and all over my shirt. And again, at the time, I didn't even know what a bidet was. I didn't even know why this was happening. It was like I said, I was 19 or 20 years old, like a little hick from Indiana. I had no clue what was even happening. And I stand up. Obviously, soaking wet with water up to like probably the tops of my toes on my shoes, and I still haven't figured out how to flush the toilet. The toilet still hasn't flushed. <laughs> oh man! And I'm just like in a panic because, like you said, I I I don't know these people. I've only been in Japan for less than an hour, <laughs> and so I I but I, I I have to flush the toilet, and I and and then I realize oh it's there's a there is a flush it's on the side it's not even on that panel it's a button that's on the side of the toilet so i flush the toilet i walk out when i open the door water seeps out into the hallway oh man oh no (laughs) and eric my buddy had been in the kitchen i say talking to the parents not really talking i say the parents the, the couple that we were staying with I mean, not talking because nobody speaks the same language, but I walk in <laughs> soaking wet and I'm like, you, I said your toilet attacked me and I'm sure they didn't understand what I said, but everybody loses their mind. The, the two, I mean, they laughed and laughed and laughed. I was going to say, they, they will be telling this story forever. <laughs> And I want to point out, I've known I've known Josh for 20 years, and I've never heard this story. So if you if this is just one of many stories, you need to write a book. This stuff keeps happening to you. Oh my God, that's extraordinary. And 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 somewhere in your in your mind, as you're soaking wet by you're soaked wet by a toilet in Japan, you're thinking this all came from playing the clarinet. Yeah, actually, I never thought of it that way, but yes, that's insane. And I, I feel like you need to put that in a movie someday. I just can't believe. <laughs> uh, I won't say. Uh, well, 
it, it sounds like something that would, that would happen in a movie like Dumb and Dumber, but that makes you sound like you're incredibly dumb. But you're not because I would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, dumb. you know, it, 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 with even five years uh, a, a life experience, it probably would not have gone down like that. But I just, I was young and com- and completely not just ignorant of of how the world works, <laughs> meaning don't press buttons. <laughs> on things that you don't understand. Um, but also like to even know that what was about to happen was even possible because I didn't, I didn't know what a bidet was, you know? Right. You just never in your wildest dreams. Did you think this toilet will do these horrible things to me? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a lesson to be learned. And I think that's the, that, that that's the perfect way to end this. This has been incredibly uh, wonderful to catch up with you, but also, I just learned a lot of things about you that I never knew. Hey, I'm going to have to play. Have you play the clarinet someday? Oh my gosh. Like, I don't, I've never even seen a clarinet in your house. You probably, after that experience, were like, you hate clarinets. Just the well, side of it. You know what? It's not, it, it was never my favorite thing. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's come in handy a couple times. Um, I got called in for, I know we're ending this, but I got called in for a Broadway show once where they wanted the entire cast to be the orchestra in the show. It was for a Stephen Sondheim show. Um, and, and I got right down to the, to the wire. I didn't, I didn't end up booking it, but uh, apparently there aren't a lot of male clarinet players who also can sing and dance. Amazing. <laughs> That's that Swiss army knife we're talking about. That's what you get when you talk to Josh Green. When you hire Josh Green, you get the clarinet, you get the movie posters, but you don't get a lot of bidet maintenance. Nope, nope, absolutely not. All right, this has been awesome. I would love to do it again sometime. We will do it again. All right. Uh, we, we, we will tango in the future. I look forward to tangoing with you, my friend. Be careful of the toilets in a foreign country. Be careful of the toilets in a foreign country. That's really what we're left with. Uh, But my hat's off to Josh Green for, you know, even admitting that that happened to him. Because he could have just come back to the U.S. and said, shh, like promised, his his friend could be promised to secrecy and no one would ever know. But it's fun when we can laugh at ourselves. And that's why, you know, I started this show talking about the little things. Those are the kind of stories I love where one little thing becomes something a monumental in this person's life. But I also want to thank Josh for talking to me about all the creative stuff he's working on, the stuff in his past that has led him to this point. We all have different paths uh, to get to where we want to do what we want to do, and that is his. But I, I hope that when you hear about these paths, you are inspired, you are warned, uh, you are emboldened, and you can even pick from that and say, part of that can be my path, and uh, I'm glad I heard about it. Um, So, Josh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep pitching. Keep creating. Keep recording. Uh, I'm Team Josh. Thank you for being on the show today. And thank you guys for being here today. I'm Corey Edwards. Thanks for stopping by.